Good morning, Christchurch. Hey, it's good to see all of you today. My name is Cruz Rueda. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the worship minister here at Christ Church. What that basically means is that since Tim is out of town, they were desperate enough to ask me to speak. So, um, you know, and I'm just thankful for this opportunity. It's always a blast. I always get very nervous. I get a little anxious as I'm preparing. And as I step out here, my heart is beating very fast. I guarantee you if I put this microphone to my chest, you will hear it. Um, and, but I'm just thankful for this opportunity to be able to speak. And can we just give it up to the worship team this morning? They did an amazing job, as they always do. And I'm just so thankful to be able to be a part of that team. And, uh, you know, I actually had the opportunity, one of my best friends is here playing drums for us this morning. And he's filling in for John, who's able to be out of town with his wife, who's celebrating her birthday. So we're just so thankful to be in this community here at Christ Church where people like them, also Tim and his wife, they're on vacation right now, and Denise is on vacation right now. And so all of this is just a giant disclaimer. <laughs> no matter what happens today, if you're a first-time guest, we invite you to come back. Try us again next week where everybody's in their right roles, and we'll see what happens. No, I, I'm just so thankful to be here uh, this morning. And we're actually starting a new series this morning called Gratitude. And it's very appropriate. We're going into this time of Thanksgiving, into the season of Thanksgiving. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm super excited for Thanksgiving season. I always get very pumped. In fact, here's a plug. Next week, here at Christ Church, 5 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall, we're going to be having our Thanksgiving meals. So we want you guys to be out here for that. Be sure to sign up so we know how many people we need to be providing fried chicken for and ham. And also, there's going to be a slot where you can write in what you're going to be bringing. So make sure you do that there. Uh, and I'm just excited to be able to uh, be here and enjoy in that meal. So put in if you're going to bring some yams, if you're going to bring some collard greens. And now I'm going to be very sad if you don't. So, um, But yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to that food. And we always look forward to food. That's the thing that we talk about when Thanksgiving rolls around. We're always like... Man, I'm excited for my aunt's mac and cheese. I'm excited for this to happen. Oh, man, my wife's dad makes this smoked turkey for Thanksgiving every year. And my mouth just watered. It is the only time that I've ever been like, man, I actually like turkey. But we talk about food on Thanksgiving, but there's more to Thanksgiving than just food itself. It's a time to sit together. It's a time to ponder. Uh, a lot of families often share what they're most thankful for during the Thanksgiving season. It's a time to just pause and meditate and uh, just share why we're thankful this year. That's a designated time of remembrance. It's great. It's fun. It's filled with joy. There's football on, right, I think? Yeah? I just know there's a parade going on at the same time. So, um, you know, it, like you're celebrating, you're with family, but at the same time, uh, it's often a time to reflect inwardly. And we look into ourselves, we evaluate our lives, and we wrestle with the significance of life at times. And we ask ourselves questions such as these. Let me know if you've ever asked these questions to yourself. What is the most important thing in life? Or how do I live fully? What gives meaning to my life? Personally, I just turned 29 last week, and so this next one has been on my mind a lot. It's, will I leave a legacy that benefits those I leave behind? You know, we contemplate life, we contemplate the significance, we contemplate everything around us, because as humans, that's what we do. It's a natural part of life. We have a desire to live a life of worth 
and significance. However, significance is individual. You know, what I think is important might not necessarily be what you think is important, you know? When me and my wife look at our budget list, sometimes I'm like, we need this, and she's like, yeah, but we really need that more than we need, I don't know, uh, an Xbox or <laughs> a gaming PC or an espresso machine. These are all things on my list. <laughs> Christmas is upon us. <laughs> be thankful and give. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so then we ask ourselves the questions, what truly makes life significant? You know, there's things that we think give value to our life, like family or friends or our house, our jobs, our investments, or even just serving. Being here on a Sunday morning, you know, being a part of a team, serving in youth ministry, children's ministry, whatever it might be, we put significance behind that. That is us. But the truth is that these things, these actions, these monetary things, tangible things can't give us value. They can't define us. They can't give our life any significance. So we ask ourselves, what should we be doing to live a life that can feel, at least to ourselves, as gratifying and significant? The Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that the practice of gratitude gives our lives here and after significance. Through gratitude, we appreciate life's goodness, and in appreciating life, we are often motivated to pay it forward. Because gratitude creates within us a deep sense of happiness and satisfaction. It enriches our friendships, it nurtures the formation of new relationships with people, and it underlies the very foundation of human society. So this morning, before we continue, will you join me in prayer? Dear God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for this time that is designated for nothing else than your word, uh, what it is that you want us to hear, to understand, to grasp. God, we pray that you bless this time, that you use this time to open our hearts, our minds, teach us what it means to be grateful, how we can express gratitude towards you and towards others. Um, God, we just humble our hearts in this time so that we can come before you and be transformed and renewed by you. Amen. So we ask this morning, what is gratitude? Gratitude can be defined as the practice of actively remembering and expressing the grace and goodness bestowed in our lives. Let me say that again. Gratitude is the practice of actively remembering and expressing the grace and goodness bestowed in our lives. So in, essentially, we should have an innate desire to show gratitude for the goodness and grace that we receive. Does that make sense? I'm going to give a biblical example of this. We read this in, um, in Genesis Eight, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Genesis 8, 15 through 20. This is, I'm going to give a brief overview. What's happening in Genesis 8 is we see Noah. We see Noah post-ark, right? So Genesis is at the very beginning of the Bible. We have the formation of the world. We have God making man and woman, and then uh, their disobedience in the garden, and then they are cast out, and uh, they enter a sinful world Cain and Abel happens, and then we have a couple of chapters, I think maybe one or two chapters of the Bible, where it's just a glossing overview of 
this person lived for how long and they had a child and that person lived for how long had a child and then we get on and on and on until we get to Noah and then Noah and his family are the only people at that time that are seen as God's followers they follow God they obey God and because of that God has favor upon them he shows grace to them and he knows in this wickedness of the world I need to restart I need to start anew but Noah and his family are faithful, so I'm going to keep them. So he instructs to Noah, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to flood the earth. And so for 120 biblical years, Noah is building an ark. And so he builds this ark. They get in the ark. I promise we're going to return to all that in a second. But they get in the ark. They go. There's the flood. And then they get to the end, and God is about to tell Noah to go out into the world. And here's what he says to Noah in chapter 8, verses 15 through 20. He says, Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is, sorry, that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Shout out to Noah for the snakes, and that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took, every, he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. After being on the ark for approximately a full year, Noah walks off the boat, and the ESV says, and then Noah builds an altar to the Lord. Noah's first recorded act upon leaving the ark is an act of gratitude. And when listening to, to, this, to this passage, or if you're reading it, it's very easy to gloss over it. Uh, we might just be like, oh, that's a normal thing. It's just a form of worship. Noah just decided, all right, um, that's what I have to do next. You know, it's a Sunday. I'm going to build an altar or something. I don't know. But if we look closer to it, we see that it's an extraordinary act of thankfulness. First consider this, the fact that Noah was on the boat. Noah was on this ark for approximately 300 and 56 days, almost a whole year of living in a giant boat with very limited human interaction, very little sunlight, and lots and lots of animals. That sounds tough. <laughs> and then he walks off the boat. He walks off the ark on this plank, and he makes a conscious decision. The first thing I'm going to do when I get off of this is say thank you to God. And it's important to note this. The Bible doesn't say this, but we can infer by reading what God does say to Noah. God doesn't tell Noah to do this. He doesn't tell Noah, hey, build me an altar. Build me an altar and burn these offerings to me. You see, at this time in the ancient Near East, uh, there, God hadn't given commandments yet. There were no statutes of here's how you worship me. Here's how you please me. Here's how you make me happy. You know? And organized religion is still thousands of years away from Noah. And we also read that Noah and his family are the only followers of God amongst the society of heathens. And we see that in Genesis 6. 
Noah didn't offer a sacrifice because it was the thing to do. He didn't offer a sacrifice because he wanted good fortune as he starts this new life. It wasn't a desire to keep God happy. He offered a sacrifice out of a heart of gratitude. His natural inclination upon leaving this amazingly large wooden box was to say thank you. That's wild to me. That blows my mind. Because here's the thing. Here's what we know about Noah. Noah was an elderly man. According to the scripture, it took him about 120 biblical years to build this ark itself. It's safe to say Noah wasn't in his early 30s. We know he had a wife. He had children. His children had children. So he wasn't in his early 30s when God commissioned him to build this ark in the first place. And then the latter part of his life, again, 120 years. That's a lot. It's a long time. 120 biblical years, Noah builds an ark at the design of God. He was ridiculed by a community who the idea of a flood was just unfathomable. They made fun of him. They ridiculed him. And as already mentioned, there was no organized religion prior to this. So for everyone else around, Noah was a crazy old guy building a giant boat and he believes he was asked to do so by a deity no one else has ever heard of. Come on. But God still trusted Noah, and Noah still pressed on. And he continued faithfully, and he built this ark, and then the flood comes. And I can imagine personally, as the flood is coming, all of his fears are washed away. There is a God. God did tell me to do this. This is happening for a reason. And as he's stunned, I'm sure, I don't know how it's happening, but two by two animals are coming out here, and they're getting in this ark. And then God tells Noah and his family to go in the ark. And as Noah goes in, then we read in Scripture that a giant hand from the heavens descends and closes the ark behind him. And then the flood happens. 356 days they're on this boat and they're being tossed around for almost a whole year by winds and waves and, 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 and storms that are happening and finally the ark banks itself on top of a mountain and a dove returns because they've been sending out doves to see if there's any sign of vegetation and a dove finally returns with something in its beak and then God says to Noah, go out, be fruitful. And then as these animals are flooding into the world, that's a pun, you can laugh. As these animals are flooding into the earth, Noah begins to march out of the ark and suddenly he's taken aback and he says, I need to say thanks. I need to give thanks. I have received this grace, therefore I should give thanks. So how does God respond to Noah's act of gratitude. We can see this very clearly in, uh, as we continue in Genesis chapter 8, 21 and 9, 1, says that after Noah built this altar and he burns these offerings to God, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination in the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures. And never again, oh, sorry. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. 
As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, I, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. As the aroma of Noah's sacrifice drifted up to the Lord, his heart was touched. And he said, I will never again curse the ground. And then God blessed Noah. God blessing Noah, it's, it's important to note this. God didn't bless Noah because of anything that Noah had earned. His blessing was not because you did this, let me bless you. His blessing wasn't because he was a stellar ship captain, right? It wasn't because he was awarding a medal to a fleet commander. Noah's blessing wasn't even a response to his own obedience. In the story, we learn that Noah received his blessing because he chose to worship, and that pleased the Lord. When we choose to worship God, he is pleased. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we're entering this season of thanksgiving, or as it's called in Spanish, acción de gracias. You know, the thing with Spanish translations is sometimes it's, it's a literal word for word. It's a, uh, here's the name, let me translate into a different name, and that's the thing, you know. It's simple when you have something like Christmas, which is Navidad. We sing it every year, Feliz Navidad, right? But when it comes to Thanksgiving, sometimes in translating, it's more of a uh, expressing of an action or a verb. And so when you have Thanksgiving and you translate it to Acción de Gracias, and then you take that and translate it back to English, you get something like acts of thanks. Or if you say it in a better way, thankful acts. And that totally changes the meaning of what we celebrate during this time, or even, I would say, how we celebrate Thanksgiving. In English, the word gratitude stems from the Latin word gratia. I'm going to mess these up, all right? I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with that. Gratia. And that means to give thanks. That's our English word for gratitude. But in the Bible, gratitude is the word eucarista, which means, which stems from the word caris. Basically, back to English, that means grace. This grace that is given. Eucarista is an offering of thanks out of the abundance. Sorry, and eucarista is an offering of thanks out of the abundance of grace shown to us. It's to give thanks to the Lord with pleasure and delight because we have received delight and pleasure from his grace. It's he has given, therefore I give back. Gratitude is not horizontal. It's not a one-way street. It's not a I give and then the same way I give, I also will Give, get back, you know? It's not a I give and take. It's not you travel one way and come back the same way. It's reciprocal. <clears throat> Instead of this, you know, it's this. It's a cycle. It's going. It's overflowing. It's a cycle of giving and receiving all at the same time. It's grace abounding. And the Bible tells us that God does not have a desire for sacrifice for sacrifice sake but he is delighted in our expression. It is 
the declared praise and adoration or an outward expression of what is in our hearts. And we see this uh, through David's words in Psalm 51, 15 through 17. David says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Your, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. That is the nature of giving. That is the nature of gratitude. By choosing to practice gratitude, we choose the grace that God has freely offered us and offer it back to him, but also to others. You see, that's the thing about grace. We don't deserve it. God isn't giving us something that we deserve. In fact, I think we, we deserve the exact opposite out of our sinful life. But God chooses to give us grace. So therefore, how can I not receive that grace and give grace, God, grace back to God? But if I don't deserve the grace that God has given me, how can I keep my brother or sister accountable for something that they do not deserve? I should then extend grace to them. They don't deserve it but I'll still give it. I might not agree with them, but I'll still give them grace because I don't deserve the grace that God has given me. It's important to note, though, that gratitude is not just talking about a simple thank you utterance, right? It's not just, thanks, God. You did good. You clutched up. That was awesome. <laughs> Instead, it's, it's receiving it. It's a practice of gratitude that flows out of thankfulness from what God has done. And recognizing that. This is God's grace poured into us as an expression of love. And when we receive God's grace given to us in our lives, we should naturally want to express it. Maybe instead we should be more proactive and ask ourselves these questions. When does God hear us offer gratitude for his grace in our lives? Is it only at the dinner table when we're in a rush to fill our bellies? Or how does my response to his grace sound? Do we contemplate his grace by saying thank you or do we just repeat the same four lines every night before bed? Do we take the time to consider moments of God's goodness and kindness throughout our day or are we just in too much of a hurry? when we slow down and take the time to recognize God's grace in our life, as believers, we will have a desire to show gratitude. It is God's grace in all of us, around us, working through us. How often then should we say thanks? Cicero says that uh, gratitude is the mother of all living and remaining virtues. Seneca believed that the spirit of ungratefulness ranked below thieves, rapists, and adulterers. That's a bold thing to say. That's a... So what does it mean to be grateful then? Standing here, I can honestly say to all of you that I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I'm here in this moment. I'm, I'm thankful that I live as an immigrant raised in a country that isn't my own for this precise moment to be here, I'm thankful. How could I not give thanks to God? But there's still one moment in my life. 
Whenever people ask me why I do what I do, why I serve the way that I do, why do I uh, lead worship once a week, why do I write sermons, why do I do this, why am I involved in church, I always say, how could I not? How could I not? You see, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I had also just been baptized. And I started getting involved in church. Our worship team didn't have a bass player. And on the whim that I have really large hands for my age, my mom buys me a bass guitar. And she's like, that's what you're going to do. You're going to play bass. And I said, okay, sure. So I'm the bass player now. So I'm learning to play bass. And I'm serving God, a God that I just met, basically, a God that is not distant but personal, a God that cares about me and all my stupid teenage worries, a God who loved me, a God who bled for me, a God who died for me, a God who called me son. And around the same time, I started playing tennis in school, and uh, I was noticing, I was realizing that my reaction time wasn't as good as my teammates, and it's not because I'm out of shape, but um, I wasn't reacting or responding to the ball properly like a lot of my teammates were. And so I started getting a little upset and frustrated and worried because it looked different. It didn't matter how much I worked out. It didn't matter how much effort I put into training. It felt like there was a place in which my line of sight, I couldn't see the ball. I couldn't respond because the ball was just gone for a second. And so, of course, I told my mother one day when she picked me up from practice, and she did what any good mother would do. She uh, gave me her own eye exam. So we're in the car, we're driving back from practice, and she's like, all right, cover one eye, read the license plate in front of you. So I do that, and then she changes lanes a little bit. She's like, all right, change your eye and read the license plate in front of you. So I do that. I failed that exam. Granted, I didn't have a lot of time to study, so that's my excuse. <laughs> so the next day, she takes me to a doctor, and they give me a proper eye exam, and and I'm sitting in this chair very uncomfortably. I can't see because they dilated my pupils. And he's coming in and out, in and out. He's, he's got these like magnifying glasses he's putting in front of the light and it's just blinding me. And then he's leaving, coming back. He's grabbing a book, looks up, and then he walks out. And it's just back and forth. And I'm just sitting there like, I don't know what's supposed to happen next. And then he comes in and then I have to defeatingly translate to my mother that he doesn't know. He has an idea, but he's not sure. And so he has to send us and refer us to someone else. So then he sends us to a specialist who does his own exam. And after he does his own exam, he's able to diagnose me with a form of ocular toxoplasmosis. That's a big word. Here's the explanation. Essentially, somewhere along the line, they believe when I was about four years old, I had a parasite enter my system. And this parasite consumes parts of your nerves or, or, or parts of your um, uh, endings inside, and essentially he can try to get to the brain, but somewhere along the line, I believe God's grace, he steered and went to my eyes. And based on scarred tissue, I actually have an image, but I didn't put it in because it just didn't look right when I blew it up. Um, there's an image where you could see scarred tissue on the backside of my cornea, where on my right eye, I can't see because signal is not coming through. And that's just damage caused by the consumption of the parasite. And at that time, we were able to actually realize that the parasite was now active again, 
and was starting to consume my left eye. And so we were able to catch that. But because of the way parasites work, they're not able to just take it out, you know? Uh, or, or the placement specifically where this one is, it's in my eyeballs. And so they were like, we can't do anything. We can't repair the, the damage that's already there to the nerves. Um, the best thing we could do is we can manage this parasite by giving you medicine. And so I start taking this medicine. And uh, this medicine is basically how it works is um, they give you this thing. The parasite now eats that instead of your eye. And it goes dormant. That's how parasites work. Is they're active, they eat, then they sleep. Kind of like we will next Sunday at 5 p.m. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so. <laughs> um, so, anyways, so they give it this medicine. The, the parasite then falls asleep and goes dormant. But because I am new and they just discovered this, they are asking me to return every so often. The only treatment is medication, um, and so I am uh, returning every couple of weeks. And I'm drinking bottle after bottle of medicine, and they're keeping an eye out. Sorry, humor is how I cope, guys. <laughs> Um, all the while, though, I'm praying to God with all my heart, and I have all the faith in the world. I'm asking him to heal me, but he doesn't. And I question myself. Nothing's happening. I'm questioning myself. I'm questioning God. I'm questioning my faith. And I don't understand. I mean, I'm serving God with all my heart, right? I'm doing all the right things that I should be doing. Not only that, but as a 15-year-old boy, I was recognizing now the burden that I was placing on my parents. You see, we were never a wealthy family. We didn't have all the money, but we were fine. And now I'm seeing as these medical bills are racking up and my mom's not able to afford just paying it all off, so she's giving monthly payments to just be able to make it. And then our medicine is even more expensive than that. Our doctor bills were costing upwards of $700 for a visit. Our medicine was about $900 because we didn't have health insurance. And I'm seeing that my mom is now getting groceries from a, a food pantry, which is fine, except it's different. It's not what we're used to. And so I took that burden. I took that blame. I realized this is me. And then my dad is coming home every week later and later, putting in overtime hours, not spending time with his family because of me. And now I'm hearing all these arguments of how we're supposed to pay for monthly uh, bills and all these things. And all of a sudden, my health starts backsliding. And I have to make another appointment because the parasite is back. All this during a two-year period. And I knew that my parents couldn't afford it. And in that moment, Satan came to me. And he told me this lie that it was my fault. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm the reason my parents are arguing. I'm the reason we can't afford these things. The reason for all of these issues is me, and my family would be so much better off without me. And then one night, I'm plotting. In the quiet, I leave my bedroom. I go towards the kitchen. Then I go towards the bathroom. And I plot how I will free my family from this curse. But God, he stops me. And he steps in and he tells me that it's all a lie. He tells me the truth that I already knew, that he loved me, that I was his son. 
that it was all a lie and that I should trust in him. But I didn't understand that. Then I returned to my bedroom. I carried on the next day as though nothing happened. And this is the first time that I've ever felt free enough to share that with anyone other than my wife. But that didn't solve the problem. You see, the difference was that now I knew that God wanted me to keep going, but my family was still struggling. I still felt like the problem, and next time my doctor appointment came around, I was still defeated. I couldn't smile anymore because I knew the routine. I knew what came next. I knew the doctor's bill. I knew what was happening, and I knew the numbers, and I knew that we couldn't afford it, but God... Because on that day, with dilated eyes, I could still make out when the doctor's office handed us a bill that was $120. And in that moment, my mom lit up, and she praised God, and she, instead of saying, I'll come back next month and make a payment, she paid it all in full. And then we got in that car, and along with her, momentarily, I was ecstatic, and I was excited, and I gave thanks along with her. But then I looked at her, and I remember I said, all right, God did his thing. He did. He showed up. I don't get it, but he did it. But I know the medicine is more expensive than the appointment itself. Let's get ready. What's going to happen next? And she looked at me, and she quotes Jesus, and she says, ye of little faith. And then she continues to drive to that pharmacy, quietly praying as I'm loathing in that moment in that seat, knowing it's not going to go well. Because, you see, I already knew the routine. I knew the prescription was more expensive. I knew the numbers, and I knew we couldn't afford it. But God, because my mom came out of that pharmacy, she handed me the bag, and she told me to read the receipt. And I can't remember exactly how much it was, but I know it was a fraction of the cost of what it ever was. In that moment, I couldn't help but laugh. I mean, what else are you supposed to do when everything around you tells you that it's over and everything around you tells you that it's your fault? And now all of a sudden God is saying, here's me and I will show favor upon you in this moment. You see, here's the thing is, I don't know. I know we probably look like a bunch of crazy people in that car. I don't know about medical bills. I don't know about laws and pharmacies and how those things work. I don't know about a lot of things for that matter, but I do know one thing. I know that on that day, God showed grace upon my family and more than just the medical and financial help. I know that on that day, God did something that I thought was too great for him to care about. I know that on that day, my faith was restored. And I know that on that day, we didn't go home. We went to church. And when I came to the altar, and I fell on my knees, and I built an altar on my heart, and I told God I would serve him. I didn't need to be healed. I didn't need a promise of future wealth or health. On that day, I made a conscious decision, and I gave thanks. That's my story. That's the reason I'm here. That's why I do what I do. That's why I serve. My story is different from yours. And that's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of God. Because each and every one of us has our unique environment, our, our unique 
road that we're coming through and God is encountering with us and he's coming before us and creating this opportunity. The fact that we are standing here, sitting here in this room, recognizing that God can do these things is an opportunity for us to pause and give thanks. You see, Noah understood that obedience leads to receiving grace, but obedience does not create grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is a gift that piggybacks off of nothing. To live a life that is meaningful, we must begin by accepting what is freely given to us and then offering that grace back to God and to others by practicing gratitude. Will you join me in prayer? Dear God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment in which we can just stop and recognize what you have done, what you are doing, and God, the promise of what you will continue to do. We know that we don't have all the right answers, that we don't know all of the things, but we know that you're in control. And ultimately, you are faithful and you are good. Whatever it might look like, disappointment, joy, failure, redemption, God, we just know that you are working all things good for the betterment of your kingdom. And in this time, we just partner with you to recognize what you have done and give you thanks. I don't know what that means and how we're supposed to respond. God, we just pray that we humble our hearts and minds so that we can do so. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we praise. Amen.